take a moment to consider all the factors that impact your health. What comes to mind? Your diet, perhaps your lifestyle, like whether you exercise, drink, or smoke. Maybe you thought about your family history of diseases like cancer or diabetes. But health and well-being go beyond that. The field of public health is about thinking broader, thinking beyond the individual, about how our built environment affects us, how laws and policies impact us, and how the social forces influence our behavior and well-being. Each week, this podcast will discuss one topic from the wonderful world of public health to reveal these ubiquitous hidden forces and artifacts. One episode at a time, we will show how public health is all around us. Welcome to Everything is Public Health. Everything is Public Health. Welcome back to Everything is Public Health. My name is MJ. And I'm Cass. This is the 10th episode, which is, you know, I don't know if that's an anniversary. That's probably a weird way to put things, but this is the 10th episode. It's definitely a milestone. Definitely a milestone for sure. And we're going to do a callback to the very first episode that we did for this show, Food Desert. And we're going to build off of that a little bit and sort of continue that discussion. But I thought it would be like a very nice callback on this milestone of an episode that we're doing. Sounds like a good plan. Yeah. So before we get any further, a quick review about Food Desert. I don't think I've emphasized this point as much as I should, but it's defined as a low-income area with no source of fresh foods. And what that means is grocery stores and supermarkets or places that sell fresh foods, right? So most definitions also consider ease of access, like transportation costs and availability. So whether there's cars in this area or whether there's public transportation in this area. But the point that I want to clear up is liquor stores, fast food joints, convenience stores, they typically don't count as sources of fresh food. Some definition will just count them out entirely. Some definitions will use like a point system. So, and these will definitely score lower than, for example, a grocery store or a supermarket. And that's a point that I want to clear up. So a convenience store or a corner store might have some fresh foods available, but they might not count or they might score lower. And so it's all about sort of the amount that's available or the the variety that's available. Like how, how does that factor in? Yeah, so essentially it's they, there's multiple ways that they calculate this, but essentially it's an amount and also like whether what is the main purpose of that store, right? So you can argue that the main purpose of a convenience store is not to sell bananas, right? It's to sell other things. I haven't uh, been to a convenience store in, 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 in a long time, so I, I don't know what they sell there anymore, but Gatorades, I'm assuming. But anyway, the point is that they, they either don't count or they score very low on when they're doing their calculations. And that makes sense because when we think of food desert, it's not that we're not talking about like starvation levels, right? We're not talking about like they literally have no access to any source of calories, right? We're talking about they don't have access to fresh food. And that's a point I want to clear up because when we discuss the topic of today, that's going to come up again. When we talked about this last time, we didn't touch on this point specifically, but another point of clarification, are there differences in how a food desert's defined if you're talking about urban versus rural areas? Yeah, so they're defined slightly differently, but the big picture concept is still the same, is that they have limited, if not no, access to fresh food, except that the urban definition uses a much tighter radius than the rural definition. So in urban definition, the radius may be one mile or half a mile, but in rural food deserts, that radius could be as large as like 10, 20 miles, because that's kind of the scale that you're dealing with when you're thinking about like rural places. It's really, but it's really far. It's very big. Yeah. Some, some of the radius that rural food deserts are used, it's, it's huge, but you know, we don't have to get too big into that. Just know that in general, if you live in a food desert, it's going to impact your health because your access to fresh food is limited. Um, so that's the point I want to get across, and we're going to come back to this later. So now to the main part of this episode, 
Food swamps, unlike food deserts, they have grocery stores or its alternatives in them, but they are completely outnumbered by unhealthy options like fast food places, convenience stores, liquor stores, and dollar stores. They are a separate phenomenon from food deserts and capture what essentially what the food desert definition doesn't. Because if you're in an area where there's a lot of those things, as soon as a grocery store is plop in the middle, the old definition of food desert would just discount that entire area because there's now technically, technically speaking, a fresh food source. So this allows the researchers to capture this separate phenomenon, essentially, that the original definition simply doesn't capture. This is making me think of a strip of road that I drive down when I go into work in Baltimore, well, pre-COVID and maybe again soon, who knows. But I would drive through this strip in Baltimore and it would be just fast food after fast food. I mean, there's like basically 10, 15 fast food joints, like all lined up in a row together. There's a similar place in Annapolis, actually, where it's just like one strip, both sides of the road, pretty much any fast food that you could think of is right there. But it's only like a half a mile from a grocery store. So there are options nearby, but then there's just so many fast food joints. Yeah. So in the previous definition of a food desert, that area would not have been captured. That area would just be like, oh, there's a grocery store, so we're going to discount this entire area. So the researchers said, well, no, these areas are separate phenomenons and they should be captured. And the researchers discovered essentially that food swamps like this, they predict obesity much more accurately than food deserts. And another thing that I want to just point out before we move on is that if you are living in a middle to high income area and you walk outside and there's a lot of food options like this, you are not in a food swamp. So food swamps specifically, they're defined as uh, these unhealthy options, right? So although you see a McDonald's outside your door, because you live in a high income area, chances are it's not just McDonald's and Popeye's. Chances are it's McDonald's and then like two streets down, it's a vegan restaurant. And then... <laughs> You know, and a two street down, it's, it's a high end bar. And a bar. Whole Foods and a. Right, yeah, yeah. A Whole Foods. So, yeah. Food Swamp is not just, oh, there's more restaurants than there are grocery stores. It's specifically unhealthy sources of food, like fast food places, convenience stores, liquor stores, and dollar stores. Right. So, the, the distinction, sort of what makes a thing a food swamp, it's not just that there's this abundance of access to unhealthy foods, but as you were just saying, it's really that sort of income level mm-hmm. or poverty level of a community, right? That sort of dis- distinguishes it from other places. Right, exactly. And it's more about the unhealthy options, not just options. So what's the big deal? And I feel like at this point, this is the theme that I want to highlight because unlike a food desert where they have no options, in a food swamp, you technically do have an option. You have a grocery store there. It might not be a great grocery store, but technically you have a source of fresh food. So what's the big deal? But at least there's something there. Yeah, there's something there. So it's not like people don't have access, right? So, and at this point, I think it becomes very easy to sort of blame people for poor decision making. Like they have the options to go there. Uh, why do they choose these poorer options that's affecting their health? Like why food swamps predict obesity better than food deserts? Like are these just a bunch of people making poor decisions? And I think that's something that I want to get into because a lot of times when we talk about people's healthcare choices, we assume that they make them in a vacuum, which is not true. Technically speaking, none of our choices we make in a vacuum. But specifically, with people who live in these food swamps, they are living in a low-income area and they don't have the same resources, both physically and mentally, to make the same decisions that perhaps we would have made. What do you mean by mental resources? Yeah, so essentially they don't have the same things on their mind when they're making decisions like this. Right, so they may be thinking about 
safety in their communities. If they're walking, they may be thinking about you know, having to work two jobs, right? Like that could be a, a problem. And we know that folks who have lower income may be faced with choices like, do I pay my bills or do I buy my medication for some chronic disease? So, okay, I, I, I hear what you're, what you mean by that. Yeah. So we're going to take a small detour into the realm of psychology. Oh, fun. But this is all going to tie in together, I promise. So in psychology, there's this something called decision fatigue, which is kind of what it sounds like. The more decision that you make. Oh, yeah. I, f- I feel that on the regular. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Different people faces different types of decision fatigues, but it's definitely a real thing. The more decision that we make, the more fatiguing it becomes. And the, the central theme is essentially willpower is limited. Everyone has a certain amount of willpower in their tank. And when you make decision, you spend willpower with every decision. And, and perhaps at the end of the day, you don't have enough willpower left to make the correct decision at the end. So this classic experiment, they ask people to remember two strings of digits. So it could be a very short string, like three digit number or a very long string, like 12 to 15 digit numbers. And when they're trying to remember these short or long digits of numbers, they ask the participant, oh, for your reward, do you want a chocolate cake or do you want a fruit cup? And they found consistently that people who had to remember longer digits of numbers, they will consistently choose chocolate cake over the fruit cup. Whereas people with who remember shorter digits of number, they will pretty much consistently overall choose the fruit I, cup. I would have to say, I think I would probably choose the chocolate cake no matter what string of digits I was having to remember. <laughs> right. So there are definitely some people who... Right. But in aggregate... Th- regardless of what group they're in, they will pick In aggregate, thing. people who had the shorter sort of mental strain or lower mental strain were more likely to choose. Yeah. And this is just a very neat little nice example of how cognitive load affects our decision and also another example how our willpower is there's a bandwidth to it like it's not an infinite source so when people make these judgments and say well they have access to fresh foods but they don't do it they're discounting the fact that you know no one's willpower is infinite well i think you shared the the experiment example but i'm sure that folks experience this on a not too infrequent basis like in their own lives so i can tell you after a long day when I've been making choices at work or I'm just feeling tired, I'm less likely to make good food choices than I would be like if I made the decision of what I was going to eat in the morning, like this is my meal plan for the day. And then I just do that thing because I've already made the choice versus at the end of the day, I'm like, oh man, I just really want to eat a pizza. Like I don't want to make a salad now or, you know, make whatever I had I have in the fridge. If I have to make that decision at the end of the day, I know I personally tend to make less healthy choices. And I'm sure others experience that too. Or just like, I just don't want to choose. There's some days James is like, what do you want to do for dinner? I'm like, I don't care. Just don't make me choose what it is. I don't care. I just, I'm so tired. I don't even want to think about it. Yeah. And you can see this on a bigger scale too. You might be like, okay, I'm going to eat vegetables every day. It's kind of like a New Year's resolution. And I'm going to eat a salad at work every day for lunch. And then you keep that up for a day. You keep that up for a week. You keep that up for two weeks. But habits are really hard to form. And habits are always affected by whatever context that we're in. So maybe you had a very stressful day at work, or maybe you forgot to bring your salad to work. We experience things like this all the time. But yet, when we look at people who are living in those food swamps and they make decisions like buying fast food, we are very quick to say, oh, they're making bad health choices. And this leads me to the second psych detour that we're going to have for today, which is something called the fundamental attribution error. And essentially, this means when we are judging someone else, we tend to pin other people's action to their individual flaws. 
instead of circumstances. But the reverse is true for when we are judging ourselves. So when we're judging ourselves, we will tend to attribute things to our circumstances rather than to our individual flaw. And this is essentially what the fundamental attribution error is. And you can see this- In marriages? On, <laughs> sorry, what? <laughs> I said you can see this in marriages. Oh, yes. <laughs> I didn't even think of that analogy. As someone who is married, please elaborate. So, I mean, I think this is true for any relationship. The best advice I got when I was getting married was to assume positive intent. We assume that when somebody else does something- that we don't like. It's because they have some character flaw, right? They they aren't a good person. They didn't make good choices, whatever it was. And we don't take into consideration circumstances that could have impacted that. But if we were in that situation, we'd be like, oh, well, there was bad traffic or, oh, this, right. So let's say your spouse comes home or your partner, if you're not married, let's say they come home late from work and, you know, you've had dinner waiting and they're not there. And, you know, oh, they, they just, they're inconsiderate. They never call. They all, you know, they, they work late and, and don't care. Well, no, the sort of, that's a fundamental attribution error, right? You're assuming some bad thing about them, some character flaw that's led them to be late versus maybe there was a crash and they had bad cell service. And so they couldn't call you and let you know that there was a problem. Anyway, when you started talking about that, I was like, oh, that's like the best married advice I got was to assume positive intent. Like don't fall into that attribution error trap. Yeah. And you can see this on a larger scale. So for example, politically. Are you going to choose two colors totally at random again with no no meaning assigned to any of them? Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to be too obvious. So I'm just going to say blue and red. Those are the colors <laughs> I'm going to pick for today. So, you know, totally arbitrary colors. <laughs> totally at random. Yep. Yeah, totally random arbitrary colors that have no meaning. So you can see this on a broader scale in a political spectrum as well. So for example, the red side will look at poor people and say, they are not hard workers. They deserve what they have because they make poor choices and they don't work hard. Or they're yeah, they're lazy. They're lazy, right? So and this is the fundamental attribution error at play because they don't consider that perhaps, you know, when you live in a certain neighborhood and you have limited access to resources, maybe you're you're stuck there and it's not your choice to be that way. And maybe they're very hardworking, but the system is just not allowing them to progress vertically. Right. Because we've systematically disinvested in communities of color predominantly, where we now have concentrated disadvantage after centuries of racist policies. But it's not it's not the policies. It's not the environment. It's their fault. They there's something fundamentally wrong with them, right? They have a character flaw. Exactly. And now that I think about it, it doesn't even have to be a political comparison. People with a lot of money, rich people, make assumptions about poor people. Rich people are like, oh, you know, I worked hard for what I have. I, you know, I went to school, I, I started a business, whatever. And so I, you know, I have what I've earned and it's because of hard work. Not recognizing the privileged circumstances that they may have been in. And when they look at people who are low income, they see people who are lazy, not hard workers. They don't acknowledge the environmental circumstances, concentrated disadvantage that have set up those individuals to not have the same opportunity, right? Everyone talks about, oh, equal opportunity. Everyone gets an education. Everyone gets all this stuff. But how you can look at, let's say, a, a young white boy, for example, uh, who's born in Roland Park in Baltimore versus a young black boy who is in East Baltimore and and say with any level of seriousness that they have equal opportunity. Like that's that's not a thing. 
so yeah, the the main point with the fundamental attribution error is that people will look at another person and they will assume that whatever that is that they're doing is due to an individual character flaw rather than circumstances. And remember how in the first episode we sort of made fun of these like health fans and health Instagram posts yeah. where it's all about like individual willpower and you know if I can do this, so can you and. Uh, and I want to bring that back to Food Swamp because I think that's a much more appropriate discussion here. No one has an infinite amount of willpower, right? So if you live in these low-income areas, chances are food is not your only worry. Chances are your worry is housing. Your worry is you have to work two part-time jobs. Safety. Safety. Maybe you have kids that you need to take care of. Maybe you have other issues that you need to take care of. And honestly, if all that stuff is on your mind, food is probably the last thing that you want to worry about. I think... This is another one of my hot takes. MJ's hot takes. Hot takes. Uh, I think it is a little ridiculous to ask those people to make healthy choices because and when you have all those stress and issues weighing on your mind to be like, oh, you you made a bad choice by getting takeout or you made a bad choice by, you know, grabbing fast food. I think that's totally unfair to them because no one, I don't think anyone when placed in those situations will have the consistent willpower day after day to make healthy choices. I couldn't agree more. Even if you have the best intentions, if you are overwhelmed or overloaded or just tired and stressed out and having lots of other worries, you know, you need calories to fuel. You're not worried about necessarily quality. Yeah. So solutions with food desert and food swamps. Uh, again, we come back to this all the time, is vote. Not just vote yourself, but promote access to, so more people can vote because people who live in those low-income neighborhoods, if they don't vote, their voices aren't heard. And there are places where voting is very difficult, either by circumstance or sometimes just by design. Like voting was made difficult for them to vote. So vote yourself and also promote more people to vote and access to voting. Absolutely. And, and vote down ballot. And yes, and vote down Always ballot. make sure that you vote in your local elections, not just for senators and governors and presidents and U.S. representatives, but vote for your state and county and city level elected officials. Yeah, because that level is what decides zoning, the local food policy. That level is what decides whether grocery stores get subsidies to open in certain places. It is all at the local municipal, sometimes state level. The next time you're driving through your community or, or another neighborhood, you know, take a look around. What stores do you see? What restaurants do you see? Takeaway places? And just think about folks living in this neighborhood, how easy or difficult might it be for them to make healthy choices? Yeah. And remember that we are all a product of our environment and living in places like the food desert and the food swamp will definitely impact your health. Nature and nurture. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of Everything is Public Health. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe and spread the word so more and more people can learn about the wonderful, omnipresent essence of public health. New episodes are released every Thursday on Spotify, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Keep an ear out for some potential bonus episodes that might drop on a Monday. Follow us on Twitter at EverythingIsPH or Instagram at EverythingIsPublicHealth. Send us questions or comments to everythingispublichealth at gmail.com. Also reach out if you think we missed an important perspective or suggest a future episode topic. You can find me on Twitter at Dr. Crafasi. 
And if folks are interested in seeing my delicious gluten-free baking creations, most recently I made walnut rolls, you can follow me on Instagram at CassPhD. Please also give us a rating and review on wherever you listen to your podcast. It does help us immensely. Don't forget to like, share, and comment as well. If you want to support the podcast directly, we have a Patreon page. You can find the link in the episode description below. And remember, everything is public health. Everything is public health.